and on the screens. It's Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. This is the word of the Lord. The readings from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Relationships, you've probably found out, are tricky things. Pain or pleasure. In Oscar Wilde's play, The Importance of Being Earnest, Lady Bracknell, who was famously played by Dame Edith Evans, she finds out that her nephew is to be married. He's just got engaged and to be married very quickly. And she says, in that high voice that she had, I don't agree with long engagements. They give each party the ability to find out about each other, and that can never be a good thing. Well, the reading today is about relationships, and the question you might ask is, on whose side is God? On whose side is God? Verse 33. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies Who is, it that he con- who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, 
is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truths of your word. Help us to receive those truths in our hearts and our lives, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will help us to face the life that we lead, living it to your praise and glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. On January the 3rd, we went down to the seafront on the day of the highest tides and the strongest winds uh, to watch the waves crashing over the seawall. We were very careful to hide behind the cafe, but we were glad we weren't out at sea. As you can see, the, the waves were quite strong. My camera's not quite strong enough to actually capture all the waves, but you've got some idea of it. There may have been, and perhaps there are times when we feel as though all the big waves are coming straight at us in our human experience. Maybe in a matter of moments, our lives and our world are turned upside down. We've suddenly gone from relative calm to chaos, from peace to perplexity. It could simply be a, a notice of redundancy that falls on the mat, a call at the doctors bringing challenging news, the children being constantly unwell, parents getting older and needing more care, simply simply becoming more demanding and forgetful, the knock on the door bringing unwanted news, bosses themselves under pressure, demanding more work from us and the stress that that causes, or the check bounces, or the cash flow is a problem, How do we find God in the chaos? How do we navigate life's white water experiences? How do we respond when everything and everyone seem to be against us? Paul asked a series of questions in that passage that we heard from Romans chapter 8 just a moment ago. Five questions about who's against us. And he listed a whole raft of situations that we might think are against us as Christians. And I asked the question at the nine o'clock service, who's against us? And the congregation responded, God is for us. Because that's a truth that we need to hold in our hearts and our minds. When everything seems on top of us, God is actually there for us. 
So how do we enjoy God's presence when the waters threaten to overwhelm us and the unexpected comes our way? Well, most of our lives aren't lived in still waters where might we find strength and encouragement. I'd suggest we can receive both in the passage that was read in our Old Testament reading this morning. God has a special servant he calls to our attention in what's known as the servant song, the first of four in the following chapters of Isaiah. And these sermons, these songs, present a portrait in poetry of the one the Lord calls my servant. So if you look at page 727 in the Bibles, you'll find Isaiah chapter 42, and we'll look at it together. The first question we need to ask is this, who is this servant? Isaiah was a prophet, and as such, his role was to speak to the people on behalf of God. Sometimes this was forward-looking. God will do this. God will continue to operate in this particular way. But the main concern was always to speak to the people regarding their present situation. One of the amazing things about God and the way he works is that he can speak to us in our human circumstances, but he also sees far ahead and have words that mean something far more significant later on. And that's what's happening in these servant songs in Isaiah. Ideally, the servant in Isaiah's time would have been the chosen people of Israel. It was God's desire that the people should be his servant, but their continual disobedience made them unsuitable. And the servant figure of Isaiah, as described here in chapter 42, is a figure who embodies all that Israel ought to be, but is not. And today, because we look back into the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament writers and with the hindsight of history, we see through Jesus and his work on the cross that Isaiah's descriptions of the servant are most true about Jesus. He is God's perfect servant. And there are four things about the identity of the servant here that we need to look at. But in thinking of Jesus as the ideal servant of God, we also should see ourselves as Christians, as servants of God, those whom he has called to serve him. The servant is, first of all, God's chosen one, verse 1. In John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 41, he states clearly that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. There was no doubt about it that Isaiah was looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And we can look back and confidently see Jesus as the servant in Isaiah chapter 42. And here in this first servant song, we're introduced to Jesus Christ. And God says, here is my servant. And when Jesus is baptized by John, God refers to his son in very similar language. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. God speaks at the point when Jesus literally begins to fulfill these words in Isaiah chapter 42. And God speaks through Isaiah saying, my servant, meaning that Christ will obey his leading. And the title servant here is one of honour, not of belittlement. So often servants are seen in history as being beneath those upstairs and those downstairs should be kept at arm's length. That's not true of the idea here of the servant. 
And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, there's a direct allusion to Isaiah chapter 42 and in chapter 53, when Jesus says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a servant giving his life on behalf of others. And we know that Jesus demonstrated his servanthood constantly. Paul speaks of Jesus having made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And we know that on the night before his death, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, an act of humility, the act of a servant. That was Jesus. What about us? We need, as I've suggested, to recognize that as Christians, we're servants too. We need to look for ways in which we can serve one another's needs not in flashy, noticeable, obvious ways, which result in all kinds of public accolades, but, like Jesus, in ways that generally meet, genuinely meet the needs of the heart without fanfare or publicity. And you and I can feel most Christ-like, most in the centre of God's will, most like the example of our servant king when we're truly serving others. Much of the pastoral care that goes on here in St. Jude's and elsewhere is done far away from the public eye. It can be challenging, it can be demanding, but it's also encouraging and it's exciting too to see God at work in people's hearts and lives. And there's no greater privilege afforded to us than to be with people in the highs and lows of their lives. Just last week, uh, there was the 10th anniversary of the Ufton Nervit train crash in which a high-speed train crashed into a car parked on the level crossing just near Reading. In church the next morning, I was conscious that a friend of ours, a doctor, was really struggling. And after the service, I went over and spoke to him, and he, he said, I was the first emergency doctor on the scene of that train crash last night. And he just told me of what had happened, that he'd got into the train carriage, a father and daughter were together, badly injured. He was able to save the father, but the daughter died. And it was a devastating moment for him. But it just happened that I was privileged to be there for him, to listen to him as he spoke about his feelings. God, secondly, upholds his servant. The idea here is of the firmest possible grip. Uh, those who are parents and those of us who deal with children at any time know how important it is to keep hold of children, to have a firm grip on them when they're walking along the cliff edge or walking along the path. And that's the idea here, that God upholds Jesus with the firmest possible grip. And that's true of us too, that God holds on to us with the firmest possible grip. And he won't serve in his own strength. He's supported by God and finds his deepest satisfaction in God. Not my will, but yours be done. I wonder if that's true of us, that we feel safe in the servant's hands. As Christians, do we know his everlasting arms with us, supporting us and upholding us by his power? With permission, I mention a situation 
of a member of the congregation who received bad news and was really struggling with that news. Sue, in the course of her pastoral ministry, visited, and during the visit, having listened to doubts and uncertainties expressed, read the 23rd Psalm, and the illustration from that was derived, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my, the Lord is my shepherd. Anyway, there were five fingers. But in the course of time, that truth was reawakened in the life of that person, safe in the arms of Jesus, upheld by him. The third point here is that he's God's chosen one, the identity of the servant in whom he delights. As I've mentioned, the people of Israel had constantly disappointed their God and creator by failing to live up to his standards. Jesus, the chosen servant of God, would bring his father great delight through his obedience because he was totally reliable, totally obedient. As Christians, you and I are special. We're chosen by God to serve him for a purpose. And as servants, when we choose to follow him, we're honouring God in our lives. But sometimes as Christians, we have a very low self-image of ourselves. We have no need for that low self-image. Lovely words used in the confirmation service in the Church of England are these from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1. God says, I called you by name and you are mine. I called you by name and you are mine. And that's true of us. He calls us by name and he knows each one of us. As children of God by faith, do we delight him as Jesus delighted his Father? There's delight in God's heart as we seek to do his will. And there's forgiveness too when we fail to delight him because we do that as humans. And as we come to communion, we say sorry to God for the things that we do to hurt him. The fourth thing about the identity of the servant is that he has the spirit of God with him. I put my spirit on him, says Isaiah. I will put my spirit on him. The servant is sent in the power of the Holy Spirit and his ministry is in the power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, it says elsewhere in Isaiah. And as the Holy Spirit was there at Jesus' baptism and God moved through the lives of those whom Jesus met as he ministered to them in the power of the Spirit. It's true for us as Christians too. We're not on our own. The Holy Spirit is with us in every situation. In Paul chapter 12, verse 9, uh, sorry, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul said, my grace is sufficient to you, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My computer grammar check didn't like St. Paul's grammar. It's quite frequent, actually, when you're doing a sermon to find that so the grammar check doesn't like Paul's grammar. But it tried to change it from weakness to weaknesses. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Actually, it's weaknesses, isn't it? If we're honest, we've all got our weaknesses. But God makes his power perfect to us. So we see the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, in these four headings. And as servants of the Lord ourselves, we ask ourselves, are these things true of us? And there's much more about the servant's ministry. 
But I want to focus on one aspect of Jesus' ministry which Isaiah wonderfully and prophetically anticipates. And that's the second main point, the servant as pastor. It's a beautiful picture here of the work and ministry of Jesus. The way the servant accomplishes task is perhaps surprising for the hearers. God's servant doesn't come shouting in the streets, nor does he dismiss the oppressed or discourage the disheartened. He's not a political rebel inciting violence and a rebellion against the authorities. Rather, he comes as a servant, given royal power by the divine king. Military conquerors, we know, use their power to suppress, destroy, and rebuild. A servant of God will be radically different. He's gentle, and he's meek. Don't confuse meekness here with weakness, though, because a well-trained horse is meek in the rider's hands, but retains its strength. And Jesus was meek, and yet he retained the strength that the Holy Spirit of God gave to him. In Matthew chapter 12, he quotes this passage in Isaiah as being fulfilled by Jesus. It says, Many followed him and healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Matthew then goes on to quote our text from Isaiah, the longest quote from the Old Testament found in this gospel. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus is contrasting, or rather the, uh, Matthew is contrasting Jesus' ministry with that of the Pharisees, who were mean, spiteful, very arrogant, and self-opinionated, whereas Jesus was the opposite, gentle and meek. So we find here in verse 3 of chapter 42, a bruised reed he will not break. People would have been very familiar with reeds in the places of around the Sea of Galilee, along the edges of the River Jordan. Reeds have hollow stems, and they're quite fragile. In fact, we see by the waterside, many of them are knocked over, as we saw on the broads just a few weeks ago. They could be knocked over by the wind, rough water, flooding, animals, human activity. And once a reed is broken, it can't be repaired. Other plants, if you prune them, uh, if they become damaged, can repair themselves and produce fresh growth, as I've discovered in our garden with arum lilies, but not reeds. Isaiah is talking about people. He's reminding us that people can become bruised, hurt, knocked over. Something that was prayed at the Pastoral Leaders' Day uh, just recently led me to this passage for today. In our world, in our parish, in our city, there are many hurting people, knocked over by the forces of living, knocked over by illness and disease, knocked over by the thoughtlessness and carelessness of other people. They're all around us. They may live next door to us. They may shop where we shop. They may play where we play. They may be here in this service this morning. The important message that we see in our text is that Jesus came to have an impact, not on reeds, but on people. He didn't come to destroy a person who's already feeling broken. Jesus didn't come to knock down a person who's already bent over by the difficulties of life. 
Jesus didn't come to hurt us, but bring life, life in all its fullness. But unlike a reed, when we're broken, Jesus, by his grace, is able to bind us up and come into our broken experience. He's able to give us new strength. He's able to bring healing to damaged lives through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. He doesn't come loudly, but softly and gently to mend the broken reeds of the world as we learn to trust him. There are numerous examples in the New Testament, and we can think of others today in our human experience. The leper, the demon-possessed man, the woman caught in the act of adultery, the woman with the issue of blood, the blind man, all met with Jesus, and Jesus touched their lives and brought them his presence and his healing. Most recently, the Kempala Baptist Church Mission has ministered to people in the name of Jesus, bringing them help and healing, wholeness of body, mind, and spirit. And there are many examples, not just back then, but now. And maybe there have been times when you and I have been like bruised reeds because of things that have happened, or indeed may be happening in our experience today. His promise is to come to bring healing into our lives, to come to the bruised reeds. He promises to heal brokenness, the hurt and the feeling of rejection. He's in the business of changing lives. And this passage is a wonderful reminder that Jesus Christ can and does mend broken lives. All of us are broken to some extent. Where do we feel the weakest and most inadequate in our lives and service for Christ. That's the place where he desires to show us his power. And today he can exchange our weakness, weaknesses for his strength today. St. Paul said, if God is for us, who's against us? Who's against us? God is for us. He promises to come there to be to, with us. But the second thing about the work of the pastor, Jesus, here is that of coming uh, as a a smouldering wick, he will not snuff out. The idea of this phrase is different from that of the bruised reed. Imagine you're at home during the evening before the days of electricity, or for the majority of us who are older in the days of the power cuts in the 1970s, struggling to uh, see Your only source of light comes from oil lamps. I couldn't find a picture of a smouldering oil lamp, so I had to make do with a candle, I'm sorry. Only one remains alight, and it begins to flicker as it's running low on oil. The light grows dim. Before it goes out, it starts to smoulder and starts to give off smoke and a strong smell. Most people would probably get up, blow out the light and go to bed. Just like the bruised reeds, the smouldering wick represents people too. Who are these smouldering wicks? Well, they're people who start out well in their spiritual lives. Lives burning brightly at one time, having a good relationship with the Lord, on fire for the Lord and witnessing for him. But during the course of the months and years, the oil begins to run out, the light begins to flicker, and the relationship with the Lord that at one time had been so good 
has now become faint and flickering. There's some spiritual life left, but not much. It's in danger of going out. Isaiah says that when Jesus comes more fully into our lives, he's not going to put out the light and go to bed. It isn't his desire to destroy what little faith there is left in us. It's his desire to trim the wick, to add oil to the lamp, fan the flame, and not to quench the light, but to bring it back to greater strength than ever before. There are different ways that our relationship with the Lord may begin to flicker. Maybe we've allowed something which we call sin to enter into our lives. Maybe it's pride or selfishness. Maybe people allow themselves to mix with the wrong crowd. Maybe it's neglect of our spiritual duties, such as prayer, Bible study, and church attendance. Maybe other issues. Reading the responses as we did in the pastoral team leaders meeting to the survey was an interesting and salutary experience. There was much that was praised, but there were also things that were highlighted that weren't perhaps as they should be. One person wrote this, the initial welcome here was amazing, but after a short time as other new people arrive, there's a feeling of just being a number The cliques are very hard to infiltrate. I'm struggling with the concept of church. If the person who wrote that is here, then I'm sorry if that's the impression that we've given. I'm sorry for our failure in that respect. And as the pastoral minister, probably the first and the last pastoral minister, um, on a yearly basis, the staff team and the welcome team go through the list of people who had pastoral contact with St. Jude's in the past year or so. And the last time we did this particular exercise, nearly 40 names were removed from that pastoral list for various reasons. It was a very painful process to recognise that people had come and gone and not found perhaps what they were looking for. Clearly there were some who'd been promoted to the glory of heaven, others who'd been promoted away to different jobs, But others who'd come here not found what they were looking for. I just hope and pray that they've found somewhere else in order to worship God and find their support. Whatever there are, reasons there are for our spiritual lives to flatter, Jesus hasn't come to put out the flickering flame of our life. He wants to fan the flame into new life. He wants to give us more oil in the form of the Holy Spirit. He wants the light to come back, burning brighter than ever before. He wants to fan the flame of new life in our hearts and in our church too. And he exercises his power in such a way that he wouldn't damage those hurting, not even a broken reed that appears useless, or a wick so uncared for that it could no longer produce clear light. Sometimes, as Christians, we do damage unwittingly by a failure to really listen and really try to understand the position that someone else is in, offering our advice and our opinion rather than listening. It may be today that we're not in either of these two places. We don't feel that we're bruised reeds or indeed that we're flickering wicks. That's great if you're in that situation. Or perhaps you've been there 
and you can listen to others and gently help them to become more aware of God's power in their lives as you've done in your human experience. Once we've come through a time of suffering or spiritual dryness and we've seen the other side, you're powerfully equipped to reach out to others through similar things by listening empathetically, putting ourselves in the shoes of other people. Maybe there are some here this morning who are feeling a bit like a broken reed. You're bruised by the cares of life. You're feeling broken and hurt. Jesus doesn't come to knock us down. He wants to mend our wounds, to bind us up, and to bring his healing and wholeness into our lives. Maybe you're here this morning, and at one time you were on fire for the Lord, but now your relationship is waning a bit and going dimmer. Or maybe it's even on the verge of going out. Jesus comes in the power of his Holy Spirit to fan the smouldering flame into new life. He wants to bring back the light. He wants to revive our spirits. And he'll do that today if we let him. In whom might we find strength and encouragement? I would suggest in this passage, as we read it quietly in our own home, perhaps as we get home and experience all that God wants to say to us through it, so much more here than I've had time to cover, but it's in God's servant, Jesus Christ, that we find healing and wholeness and the strength to serve him faithfully. Let's bow our heads to pray. A moment of quietness as we reflect on where we are in our own human experience. And allow the Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and our minds to claim the promises of the servant of the Lord to bring healing and wholeness, to fan the flame of our flickering faith into new light. Father God, we thank you for the picture that Isaiah had of Jesus. Thank you for that prophetic message that he brought to his people. Help us now in the quietness of our own hearts and lives as we gather around your table as your people to receive your Holy Spirit's power in our lives more fully, to bring us healing and wholeness and to restore our commitment to you so that we may know that there is nothing that can separate us from your love and that whatever the world may throw against us as Christians, Nothing can take us away from your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.